This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host Stephen Michael and Sunny Hollywood Pooney. Congratulations, you guys made it to 100 episodes. Now, crank it up. Hollywood, we made it to 100th episodes. Holy shit, did you think we'd ever make it this far? Uh, first of all, no. <laughs> and second, I, I know what the secret is. The secret is we can't be in the same room doing 100 episodes because I would have killed you by like episode 22. So I think the distance between us allows our relationship to blossom. See, I would agree with that. It's always the secret sauce. I ain't got to look at your ugly face, which is a bonus for me. And I don't have to listen to ballads every night and uh, watch you cry. So that's a beautiful thing. That's right. <laughs> so it's, it's important for a long lasting relationship to have time away. I would agree with that 100%. And I say that as my wife is on a business trip for the next four days as we speak. <laughs> She's going to kill me when she hears that. A hundred episodes from a relationship that got started with you picking up the phone and calling me and said, hey, uh, uh, you want to kind of record? I mean, that's amazing. God, I know. It's nuts, right? I took the first step. And that's a big step considering that I'm, uh, you know, an introvert. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, taking the first step with me. I mean, I, I know I'm an acquired taste personality wise and uh, I can be tough. And at times I won't make a decision at times. I don't agree with any decisions. You know, it's all kinds of stuff, but, uh, you know, it's work. Listen, I think, uh, you and I talked about it a little bit earlier. Uh, it's the love of rock and roll that brings us together. And the whole point of this podcast is basically to carry the flag for hard rock and metal music because, We don't think that radio, whether it's Sirius XM or local radio or whatever, we don't think radio is doing any of these bands any favors. I don't think that bands like Y&T and Van Halen and ACDC and Name One should be measured on three or four songs. I think they should be measured on their entire career. And I think that not only people like us that grew up with that music, but the next generation that is coming up that's 12, 13, 14 years old should be subject to the full catalog and not just these little things that they might see or hear. And so that's that's kind of the whole point of this podcast is not only that music we grew up with, but all these killer new bands that are putting out music that sounds great today who don't really have, you know, anybody fighting for them in their corner. That's what this podcast and other kick-ass rock podcasts are all about. Yeah. And I'm, you know, for me, I'm glad I found an outlet to be able to share the music I listen to. You have no idea how good it makes me feel when somebody either reaches out to me and said, Hey, I had not heard any Richie Kotzen, but I got this and I absolutely loved it. Or, hey, can you tell me where to start with Y&T? They got so much music out there. Give me a few songs to try. Like, there's no other part of my life in the last 40 plus years 
there's no other way for me to share that. It was just basically me and my friends and that's about it. And, you know, everybody I work with listened to pop and country and all that kind of crap. And my, you know, my kids got into different kind of music, although I brainwashed them a little bit, but this was definitely a way for me to share. And, uh, I'm glad I got the opportunity. Yeah. And this episode, I mean, it's so special to us being able to talk to Dave Manichetti about a band like Y&T, who both of us think are amazing. You really have carried the torch for this band for, you know, ever since I've known you and your history with the band goes back. Uh, as you mentioned to Dave in this interview, you've seen the band, what, 49 times now? 49 times. I mean, that's just crazy. crazy. Yeah. I don't think there's any band that I've seen 49 times, you know, unless you're counting a band that I was on the road with or tour managing or something like that. There's no band that I've seen that I've been a fan of that I've seen 49 times. None. Yeah. And for me, it was a combination of, and we talk about it a little bit with Dave, but it was a combination of them opening for some huge acts, them playing along with the same bill with a bunch of acts, them playing in my backyard. Uh, I lived around the corner from one of the uh, biggest concert places in Northern California. Um, and then they, they were just available all the time, which was awesome. And they were never worried about, you know, well, that's a club. We're not going to play a club. Shit, they'd play a club, no problem, if they got to play two or three times that month. So it was just a great opportunity, and it's just been there my whole life. And I remember when you said we had an opportunity to talk to Dave, and uh, we came up with some ideas of what we wanted to do. And we'll get into that when we get into the episode. But, you know, I'm, I'm standing in front of the notes I have. I got like nine pages of notes that I wanted to talk to him about. Like we ended up talking to him about 20% of probably what I wrote down uh, because otherwise we would have had him for like five, six hours. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of stuff and kudos to you because this idea for this interview was all of Hollywood's idea because we both looked at each other and said, Hey, we're going to talk to Dave Manichetti. And neither one of us wants to sit there and ask Dave the same questions that he's been asked, you know, thousands of times over his 40 year career. We wanted to talk to Dave about something that maybe he hasn't been talked to in detail about before. You know, why don't you explain what the idea was that you came up with and tell the folks? Yeah. So, you know, we don't like doing the same boring interview. So my idea was, I'm like, well, when was the last time he got to talk about some of the albums he recorded? Yeah. People ask him about recordings here and there and some of the popular songs, but I'm talking about like full type of albums. And what if we gave him some choices? So we gave him like three, three packs of choices, an album from each era of the band sent it to him and said, all right, you pick which ones you want to talk about. And he got to pick, which I figured would engage him more in the conversation. And what you're going to find out during the recording of the episode, like he had stories, he had thought about it. He, when we skipped a song, he went back and said, Hey, I want to talk about this song real quick. Cause it was a good story about that. So it worked out exactly how I thought it would. Yeah. And the listeners benefit from it because uh, you're going to get a, a great conversation with Dave Menachetti from Y&T. Once again, thank you for everybody that's been there over the course of these hundred episodes. 
Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Continue to share. We appreciate it. We hope you guys continue to dig what we're doing. The numbers and masses are growing, and we appreciate it because it helps us get the love of rock and roll out there. So thank you for that. And how lucky are we that our 100th episode is one of my favorite guys in rock, baby. Check out Dave Menachetti. Enjoy, people. Hey everybody, this is Dave Minichetti from YNT. You're listening to Growing Up Rock with Stephen in Hollywood. This is a special one. This is the 100th episode, so I am happy to be here on YNT's 45th anniversary doing this episode. So listen in and turn it up. Somehow I managed to keep control 
Growing up in Northern California, Y&T is a major part of my growing up rock story. To this day, it drives me absolutely nuts when a supposed rock fan doesn't know who Y&T is, especially if they're from California. Even though they've been rocking the world for 45 years, the passion and work ethic has never wavered. We are so honored to have with us the absolute hero of my teenage years, the underrated vocalist and guitarist of Y&T, and one of the hardest working guys in rock, Mr. Dave Menachetti. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, that's a hell of an intro. I, I hope I live up to it right now. <laughs> Thanks so much. I appreciate that. You know, I mean, it hurts me, too, every once in a while when I hear uh, certainly a California rocker that says, Y&T, who's that now? <laughs> it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> Were you just under a rock for the last couple of years or what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a couple of years. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you can understand it if they're like, you know, 14 or something or maybe 75. Okay, so, but in between that, uh, you should have been listening to the radio and figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Dave. You know, there's bands that got missed along the years, and there's bands that come out today that, you know, just don't even have near a shot. The whole purpose of this podcast really is to carry the flag for rock and roll and get the music and the stories of the bands out there that we grew up with, along with a lot of newer bands that are making their way today. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, bands like yourself, you guys are still putting out great music today. And we don't think that Y&T should be judged on three songs over their career when they have this ridiculous catalog of all this amazing music. Right. We're going to make sure that we do that. Well, good. And that's a worthy thing. And, and I applaud you guys for doing that because... As you said, I mean, it's, it's tough enough for people that have been in the business for years, but especially new acts right now, it is absolutely the, one of the hardest times, I think, for musicians to make a dent in this industry. Yeah, I think uh, the best place for us to start with tonight's episode really is just kind of letting you know where we came into Y&T. For me, my entry point into Y&T, like a lot of bands, I found out through reading Krang magazine or Hit Parader, I think there was a cover of Krang that had, it was either you or Phil Kenimore on the cover, if I remember correctly. And it was around 83 in the release of Mean Street. I was a junior of high school. That's kind of where I first found out about the band. You know, there was no internet or any of that stuff going on then. So you had to read and, exactly. and figure it out. I went out and I picked up the record and I started moving backwards after that record because, I mean, I loved, I loved that the minute I picked it up. So I moved backwards and I went to Black Tiger, then to Earthshaker. But, right. you know, I never had the opportunity to see the band back in the day. You guys were on an ACDC tour, but I lived down south. And by the time ACDC rolled around, you guys weren't on the bill anymore. I lived in a small town, and the only chance for me to see bands were basically through big tours. So uh, I finally got my chance to see Y&T a few years ago after the release of Face Melter. All right. You guys were playing some weird club in Marietta, Georgia that I didn't know much about because I'd never been there before. And I didn't know their policies or their set times or any of that crap. So I ended up going to the show with my wife. 
missing half the set. I walked in. You guys were already on stage. I missed half the set. Needless to say, I was uh, not real excited or real happy, but I finished out the rest of the set. And my opportunity to see you guys came a year later when you uh, came back through town and played a much better club. <laughs> and and I, got to, <laughs> I got to check the whole set out then. And then, of course, I caught you guys twice on the Monsters of Rock cruise earlier this year. So All right, cool. That is my story with Y&T and uh, loved every minute of it. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying about how it was very difficult in the early days to see us if you were in a small town somewhere. If we weren't on a major tour that came through nearby, you know, you were going to be stuck with having to drive a really long distance to go see us somewhere else. And then you finally got your chance. And uh, yeah, I, I, I imagine that as shocked as you were by that first club in uh, in Georgia, we probably were equally as shocked when we, when we showed up. <laughs> but uh, that's okay. You have the opportunity now to see the full set and uh, and see us a couple of times. So that's good. Yeah, I finally got the religion of Y&T and understood it 100% live and uh, just it is somewhat of a religious experience, especially for me when I was standing on the top deck at uh, Monsters of Rock Cruise and we're out in sea and the wind is blowing through my hair and you guys are on the pool stage for that first show. I was literally kind of on top of the stage off to the side on that uh, railing and just had a fantastic view and I mean, it was amazing. One of my favorite shows of that trip. All right, great. Thanks. I'm glad to hear that. All right. Yeah. My entry point's a little different. So I grew up okay. in the San Francisco East Bay in the eighties. I was a KRQR MTV kid. So summertime girls is my entry point. I remember kids at high school wearing wine t-shirts, but I didn't really, I hadn't heard much of the music. My first show was Halloween night, 86 Conquer Pavilion. And for those that were there, Castle Black opened. Yes, Babes in Toyland, Castle Black, believe it or not. I was already a major Kiss fan. I remember you coming on stage with that sunburst guitar, and I'm like, oh, he must like A's too. Got to remember, I'm just a stupid kid, right? And then <laughs> I, I hear the first guitar solo, and I'm like, A's don't sound like that. And immediately, you were one of my favorite guitar players. And... Thanks to the Halloween shows at Conquer Pavilion, the New York shows at the Catalyst and the Katati Cabaret, the Omni, the Stone, the Monsters of Rock Cruise, I've seen you 49 times. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so I'm amazing. a huge fan. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, and, man, uh, the Conquer Pavilion I, back in 86. Wow. That was our newest drummer at that time's first show. And so oh, yeah. that, was, that was a real experience for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I lived down the street from the pavilion, so I grew up in Concord. So I wasn't far from San Lorenzo, but uh, yeah, you guys, I mean, you're part of my life because, well, if you live in the Bay and you're a rocker, there's no way Y&T isn't part of your life. Right on. Yeah, that's that's cool, man. That, I like that story, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a true fan for sure. Let me tell you, Dave, he has carried the flag for Y&T more times than I could ever begin to mention on this show through the course of the 100 episodes that we've recorded thus far. Good. Good man. So both of us like Y&T, but Sonny really likes Y&T. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I saw the wind almost blow you off the pool stage, I was like, 
if my uh, idol gets hurt up there, I'll be pretty pissed. Can somebody figure out how to control the wind? Because it blew you over yeah. a couple of times. Yeah, it was it was pretty intense. Uh, I, I was surprised by the fact of how much my Les Paul was acting as a sail. Because <laughs> there were a couple of times when I was coming up close to the microphone, getting ready to sing something, and it started to push me away from the mic. And I thought, wow, that is really unique. <laughs> I, I mean, I've... I've been in heavy-duty windstorms before when we played, but that, that was a, a different sort of experience. And a couple of days uh, later, or maybe wouldn't it was the next day, actually, we're talking with uh, our buddies from Tesla, and they were saying, oh, man, one of our amplifiers actually got blown over twice on stage, and we had to have a, a road crew guy stand behind the amplifiers and hold it with their, with their hands so it wouldn't get you know knocked over. It was pretty intense a couple of times with that with that wind up there. Hey, but Dave, just from a watching standpoint, let me tell you, it looked pretty fucking cool, man. Your hair's blowing back. <laughs> you're cranking up the Les Paul. I mean, good God, that was made for a video. <laughs> so fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not not sure how how good all of our hair looks, but that's all right. We didn't care. It was. <laughs> It was all about the show, and uh, you know we had a, a bunch of our buddies from other bands that were sitting in front of us watching it too, and that, that was fun. <laughs> well, you know that's an interesting point you bring up because uh, Sonny and I have had the opportunity to interview many other artists uh, over the course of the hundred episodes, and a lot of them, especially the ones like the Tesla guys, and um, there's been a few others along the way as well. A lot of them we'll talk about the influence that Y&T had on them, whether it was individuals or the band itself. I spoke to Troy Lakeda, and the first name he brought up was uh, Leonard Hayes. You know, I thought it would be fun to share that with you because uh, that's very, um, you know, that's very impressive. Yeah, no, that, that, that's it's always nice to hear stuff like that. Yeah, Troy was uh, was a fan of Leonard's and just, a, you know, another musician that went from a fan to a friend and uh, and then of course he got into a, uh, into Tesla years later. He, you know after he'd already you know been a friend of ours and uh, even helped us out uh, when we had our first uh, drummer change when when Leonard was uh, was let go in '86. Uh, we needed somebody to help us as we were writing songs for the next record, and Troy came in and did a couple demos with us. Uh, so uh, he he was always always a good guy, always a great drummer, good man that guy. Yeah, as the California, uh, you guys over there in, in the San Francisco, the Bay Area, all the musicians over there, is it a pretty close brotherhood with guys like you guys and Eric Martin and the Teslas and the Neil Shans and, and all those guys? Are you guys a fairly close brotherhood out there? Well, it, I think it was more so in the beginning of our career because all of us were sort of starting out at the same time for the most part. Not necessarily Tesla. Tesla started, you know, many years mm-hmm. later. They 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 were sort of late '80s, but yeah, there is a certain brotherhood that goes on. When it came to Journey, we used to hang out with them all the time because we were signed by the same management company uh, when we very first started, and they first started. So uh, we would play lots of shows together. We probably played about 20 shows together in the course of a couple of years, but that was in the '70s. That was a long, long, long time ago. But I haven't, I you know, I don't see the guys from Journey ever, <laughs> unless we're on the stage together uh, playing a show that we're sharing the stage. 
you can almost be 100% assured that uh, I'm not going to see any of those guys. Although that's not 100% true either, because our drummer, Mike, is a good friend of Steve Smith's. And uh, Steve, I've seen numerous times in the last few years. And I also see their bass player, uh, who is a funny man. (laughs) I see him every once in a while. And uh, we shared uh, a good friendship with our former sound man who passed away recently. And uh, and I saw Ross Valerie at Tom Size's memorial. So, so yeah. So I, I see those guys for once in a while. The, the other guys all the time. I see Eric Martin all the time. I see the Tesla guys all the time. It's good brotherhood of musicians out there. And, you know, the guys from Night Ranger and, and everybody else. We, we see each other many times. Yeah, you guys are all living out on the road these days. I mean, I guess you go out and you do... Pretty your, much. Yeah, you do your, do your dates, man. That's the one thing that's probably, you know, not as fun for you guys to have to be out on the road all the time. But from a fan perspective, it's uh, great for us because we get to come see you play. So (laughs) we don't we don't hate it. You know, we love it. Well, we don't hate touring either. Yeah. Uh, You know, I mean, it is a big commitment. I mean, because when we go out for the U.S. tour, which we've just you know, we've already finished so far this year. We did it in February and March this year. That's two months, two straight months you know, and constantly going every single day. So, uh, and it's the same thing when we do our full European tour, it's, it's two months straight and it's a lot of, a lot of ground travel, you know, 11, 12,000 miles on the ground. It's, it gets a little bit uh, difficult after short, you know, after about five or six weeks of being out there, you oh, start yeah. getting run down a little bit, but, uh, it works out great, you know, because the, it doesn't matter what happens on the road. As soon as we get on stage, it all, you know, goes away. Any any of the tiredness or any of the, uh, you know, the travel uh, doesn't matter. You know, you get on stage, it's a different environment. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So for the topic at hand, just to explain real quick to the listeners. So our friend Dave Manichetti here has uh, done tons of interviews in his lifetime. And, uh, you know, some of our podcast friends have done some excellent history pieces on the band. That being said, listen, we thought it was doubtful that we were going to ask Dave something that he has not already talked about in an interview. So we want to do something a little bit special and a little bit different. So we gave Dave several groups of album three packs to choose from. And we asked Dave to pick a three pack of albums to discuss. And he has been gracious enough to select for us tonight three albums from different periods of the band's career. We are going to discuss Black Tiger, Contagious, and their most recent record, Face Melter. Three fantastic records. So I'm looking really forward just to getting into this conversation. All right. So let's start with Black Tiger. So it's 1982. Other albums in 1982, Scorpions, Blackout, Rush Signals, Iron Maiden, Number of the Beast, Judas Priest, Screaming for Vengeance, Van Halen, Diver Down. Second album on A&M, Earthshaker happened to do a lot better in Europe and Japan. In the Y&T world, we're eight years after formation. We're quite a way away from you plugging a $27 guitar directly into your Paris console stereo, which I had one of those too. Um, So it's 1982, all this great music is out there. Give us the state of the industry and what's the band vibe right now? Like, how are you guys feeling in 82 when you're recording Black Tiger? Uh, Well, 82 was actually a really great year for us. I mean, it turned out to be a really great year. When we were starting writing for Black Tiger, 
we had no idea what was going to come up. We certainly were feeling positive because we felt like even though uh, A&M didn't do a bang-up job with Earthshaker in the U.S., we had done our first tour in Japan that year in 82, and it was super successful. In fact, they, we started off as a headliner over there playing these big places, so that was outrageous. And then, you know, we knew that we were going to go to Europe finally and uh, and not only there to record the record, but also to tour. So at least a little bit, that's where it first started out. So we were excited. We were excited about uh, what was going to come. And we just hunkered down at the, re- at the rehearsal studio and started to write for that record. And luckily for us, we were pretty much turned on by the touring that we did with Earthshaker record. And uh, that had given us a lot of influence to, to write some great stuff in the couple of months that we spent, you know, just basically living at our rehearsal studio. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about working with Max Norman, the producer. You guys recorded that album in England where Ozzy used to record those records, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that was the thing we, we were told about, you know, Max Norman, being this guy that had just gotten off of doing, you know, uh, really popular Aussie records, obviously. And so we were excited, you know, he had Randy Rhodes, you know, that version of Aussie and, uh, and they recorded at this particular studio in the UK. And, uh, we heard about this place and we were kind of intrigued by the whole thing. I mean, we'd never been outside of the U S at that time, except for the tour to Japan and so, well, actually, I don't even know if Japan was before or after the UK. Now that I think about it, it might have been, oh, it was after. That's right. So this was our very first time to go outside of the U.S. was to just fly over there and start doing the recording in the UK. So we were looking forward to it. We heard that this place was a, a special kind of recording studio because it was out in the middle of this really beautiful area south of London and it, it, a lot of rolling green hills and lots of sheep <laughs> and, and these amazing mansion type houses out there and everything. And we were going to be recording at one of these and staying there on the premises at the same time. So it was sounding like a, it was going to be an interesting setup for us. And indeed it was when we first got there, we were, we were freaked out. It was, it was like, wow, we were in a different world all of a sudden. So uh, I think that helped to get to add a little extra to the recording of the black type record. Yeah. Now was the material by the time you got over to England, was the material done? Where were you in the process by the time you got over to England in the writing of the record? Well, Max Norman had come out to the Bay Area to hang out with us. He was the producer of this record, and he spent a couple of weeks with us just hunkering down and going through every single song and every little bit. And his thing was something different than we had ever actually you know, had come across so far with a producer was that he really got into the rhythm section. I mean, he would concentrate on every bass and kick drum being you know, bass note and kick drum being played, making sure that it, you know, that it was perfect and that, that you know, that it was never going to be inconsistent, that Leonard wasn't going to play something different the next time around or whatever. And uh, it was great. I mean, that, that part of it was fantastic that all of a sudden, all of our rhythm section was getting tightened up like they'd never been before. And uh, of course, we went through every little bit of every song to make sure that it was all there and uh, no other parts needed to be rearranged or whatever. So by the time we got on that plane, we were 
essentially done with almost everything. I will say almost everything because some of the lyrics hadn't been written yet for a few of the songs. Mm -hmm. They had heard, you know, uh, well, Max had heard our ideas for the melodies already. And I was shouting out just anything that came you know, to my head at that time, which is what I would do whenever I'd write a song. I would just make up words as I was singing the parts of the songs for just to give everybody the idea of where I thought the, you know, the melody should be for the verse, bridge, and chorus. And uh, when we finally got around to writing the lyrics, of course, sometimes those crazy words that I would be singing almost sounded like some words that made sense to write the lyrics around. So, yeah, that's the only part that was not 100% finished. By the time we showed up in the UK, there were probably three or four of the songs, maybe three, that didn't have lyrics yet. And one of them was Barroom Boogie. I know that that was written as we were on the premises there in the UK. And uh, there were a few others as well. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. All right, so uh, let's talk about side one. So side one has From the Moon, Open Fire, Don't Want to Lose, Hell or High Water, Forever. Whose idea was it to open with an instrumental because live when that instrumental starts i swear to god the room feels like it's about to get his ass kicked so the instrumental <laughs> is awesome but kind of weird to start an album that way in 82 or was that on purpose or by mistake well it was joey's idea to uh you know take that opening riff from forever and I think it was Joey. I'm, I'm pretty darn sure. I, I can't be 100% certain now if I think about it, but I'm going to say that it was probably his idea to make that its own little instrumental piece. And then I sat there with the uh, producer and I tracked numerous versions of that intro piece, just my guitar. And, and then I, you know, it ended up becoming this thing where we were like, wow, that would be a really cool intro to the record. So it wasn't something that we even had thought of before we even got to the re recording studio in the UK. We'd never discussed that at rehearsal or anything. It was just one of those things while we were, you know, recording everything, the two inch tape. Um, hey, let's try this idea. So that's kind of what it was. It was just basically off the top of our heads kind of thing. And all the songs are credited to all four guys. And I know from past interviews that Leonard knew how to get his voice heard. So when you're writing a song like open fire, what's the songwriting like is somebody bringing a guitar part. Somebody's bringing the lyrics. I know Phil wrote a lot of the lyrics too. Is Leonard kind of yes. piping in anytime he wants to like, how's that coming together? Sure. I mean, everybody, it was a democratic way of, of writing. Although as the time went by with the band, it started to become, a thing where certain guys just wrote tunes more prolifically. Let's just say it that way. The ideas started flowing better with certain guys, but it was never always just one way. It was basically how we used to do it when we first started out was we would get together at the rehearsal studio. We would sit there and just jam and whatever came up, it came up. And a lot of times somebody would get an idea and you know, a lot of times it was me and I would stop the band and whatever we were doing and say, oh, wait a minute. I just got this idea. Hold on. Let me let me think it over for a second. 
And then, you know, I would sound it out with my guitar and then I would tell the guys, Hey, you know, play this, play that, you know, give it a try. And then let's go from there. And that's how a lot of things were written. It was just by the seat of our pants from jamming. All of a sudden somebody got onto a great lick or, you know, somebody was inspired by something we were doing at the time and thought of something else. And we wrote it right there on the spot. It was, it was a lot of that kind of feeling. And uh, myself and Phil were pretty much the major songwriters by that record. And that's how it went from there on in our career was the two of us sort of wrote the lion's share of the material. But it wasn't always everything because Joey was coming up with all kinds of really great riffs, great rhythm parts. In fact, he came up with that intro to Rescue Me on, on the Earthshaker record and lots of things like that. You know, he, he always had this this great uh, ability to just come up with super great chord combinations and stuff like that. So, and and Leonard, like you said, Leonard would always have input to everything that we would do, and he would be right there, you know, saying, "Hey, man, why don't we try doing that riff over here instead?" Or you know, or he would just come up with this totally different rhythm that we weren't expecting or something, you know, and that's what made each song is that the four of us put our two cents in. That's awesome. All right. So jumping around a little bit, let's talk about forever. I will say your guitar solos, although I've heard you say before, you don't play the same guitar solos every single night on some of the songs, your guitar solos are like harmonies to me. Like when I'm watching you live, I almost remember some of the solos more than I remember the vocal melodies. So <laughs> stuff like forever, are you crafting those solos? Is just what comes out of you at that time and you do it two, three times, or is it kind of pieced together? Well, in general, the way I used to approach solos with a few exceptions, and believe me, a few, <laughs> only a few, is that when the solo section would be put together as far as the, the rhythm part underneath or whatever, I just kind of wing it. And depending on how many times we have played that song at rehearsals, uh, maybe I start coming up with a general idea of, of how I want to approach the solo by then. But a lot of times, and certainly years later, when it would be, you know, Black Tiger came out, we did nothing but touring. Okay, you got two months to write an entire record, get in the studio. Uh, there wasn't a lot of time to do something like that or, or to explore where I would go with a solo. So most times I would be standing there at the mixing board and just, you know, with my guitar coming through the monitors and I would just come up with whatever happened at the moment as it was going down. And I would bug the hell out of the engineer because I'd go, okay, now let's do it again. Okay. Now let's do it again. Okay. Now let's do it again because I'm literally trying to come up with good stuff. And then I'll listen back and I'll go, Hey, I like that part I did right there. Oh, I like that. I did there. And then I try to just put it all together and try to play it. So that's kind of, I, I just, you know, find parts that I liked from just doing it off the, off the top of my head. And I, I like doing things like that. I mean, it's frustrating for the engineer because he's got to keep rolling back and trying it again, but I'm putting a hundred percent of my soul into every single track time that around that I try to play a solo. I mean, I'm literally sweating by the third take and probably hurting my voice because I'm, I'm probably screaming on the inside while I'm playing these things. And I'm panting at the end of a, you know, 20 second guitar solo <laughs> because I'm so trying to get into the spirit of it. And that's what I would do. And then I'd never know what I was doing until I heard it back. And so that's how I would end up crafting a solo many times. 
but forever, as you're going to find out in the documentary when it is finally going to get released this year, uh, Joey tells the story of that he had this idea in his head about this lick, and he explained it to me just by saying, "I got this thing, Dave." And he would do just like that, and I'd have to try to figure it out on guitar what I thought he was saying melodically, and then uh, I ended up using that for part of my solo, and, it, and it's a recognizable part of a forever solo, and it was Joey's idea to come up with that riff. That's awesome, and don't think it passed me by that I heard you say that that uh, documentary we've been hearing so much about is finally going to get released this year. We're going to come back and talk about that for sure, but we're going to move on to side two, and side two, uh, yeah, we're talking about sides here, kids. There's actually one side and two <laughs> sides on albums back in the day or cassettes uh, in my case, but that has the classic Black Tiger, Barroom Boogie, My Way or the Highway, Winds of Change, and a bonus track that was released on the remaster called Somebody for Me. Do you remember any stories around any of those tunes? Well, I remember how we put different things on those songs, like with Black Tiger, we, the, the whole thing about the intro with the jungle sounds. That was something that we had no idea we were going to do until we were in the studio. And Max Norman had this idea, hey, man, I got this whole idea that we put down these, these jungle noises. And so myself and Max, and I don't know if anybody else did it, got on the microphone and started making like these sounds of animals. <laughs> but before we did that, he went to the library or he sent, actually, he didn't go. He sent somebody out, one of the staff at the, at the recording uh, studio he sent them out to the library and they were looking for, that's right, a vinyl record <laughs> <laughs> of jungle sounds or, or just, you know, evening sounds or something like that. And so sure enough, somebody came back with, with a vinyl record of it and they recorded part of that recording of that vinyl record into the two inch multi-tracks. And then we'd made our little uh, noises of, of animals over the top of that. <laughs> So that was just a little a little bit of, of what happened with the intro of Black Tiger. We just made that happen on the spot because there was no talk about doing that before. And uh, Barroom Boogie, like I had mentioned to you, that was a song where Phil wrote the lyrics while I was in there doing all the other overdubs, doing other songs where I was singing the lead vocals or doing guitar solo or something like that where I wasn't around, he'd be like backing that up by making sure that he had the next song ready for me to sing by the time we got around to that song. And uh, Phil literally wrote that about his own life, growing up in, uh, and being a rock star from, the, from day one. And uh, he lived that life. There was no question about that. Phil was the kind of guy, when we were at home, you know, we'd come and pick him up for rehearsal studio along the way, and uh, we'd have to like wake him up at like one o'clock in the afternoon because he's still he's still dead asleep after being hammered by you know hanging out at some bar locally and you know going home with some woman who knows that you know he woke up the next day going wow who's this oh shit what did I do <laughs> so it it was just natural material for from him to to feed off of to to come up with the lyrics for that song. I mean, and that's such a fun song. Like, I can completely see the 52-year-old me sitting back with a nice glass of um, Dave Menachetti red wine and just, this is such a drinking song, right? <laughs> I 
<laughs> I mean, it's oh, just, yeah. it's just fun from start to finish. And the acoustic version you guys did on this uh, classic volume one uh, is really uh, fun as well. Really good. Yeah, that came out really cool. And that was something that we discussed when we were talking about doing an acoustic record. And that was something that certainly I brought up too was, you know, let's do stuff that we don't, that we don't expect people will expect us to do as an acoustic version. They're going to expect, you know, that we do the, the typical stuff like the ballads or, or something that's got a kind of a sing-songy uh, melody or something. But let's do stuff that you would never expect YNT would do acoustically. Yeah. And, and sure enough, so we tried a few of those things, and, uh, and Barroom Boogie felt really good when we were coming down with it. And it was really fun to sing.
Yeah, that's a great choice. I think that's definitely the right way to approach that type of record. So I'm glad that worked out as well. So listen, before we close out Black Tiger, give us a song off Black Tiger that you wish more people could have heard. Huh, okay. Probably Winds of Change. That was a real classic song on that record for me. Now, now, you know, enough people have heard us play it live, but it was one of those things where it was an inspirational track when we were doing that record. I would get into recording the vocals for this record, the lead vocals, and I'd be in there for hours and hours and hours. I mean, from, you know, when we were done doing all the, all the guitar tracks and all the solos and all that kind of stuff and all the background vocals, it was all up to me at that point on to, to just get these, these lead vocals done. And so I'd spend the better part of maybe anywhere from 12 to 17 or 18 hours straight every day, just recording vocals. You know, we take breaks every once in a while, of course, but, and winds of change was one of those things where we probably started recording that record at maybe midnight, the lead vocal part for that. And I probably didn't finish until the sun was coming up at maybe five, six o'clock in the morning, because I was really searching to find the right vibe as I was singing it because it was almost kind of like, you know, doing the guitar solo thing. I mean, I certainly had an idea where everything was going to be, but until you do it for the first time on record, you start realizing that, oh man, I should do this better. or I should, you know, try this different thing. So, you know, it took me quite a few hours to get that vocal right. And literally the sun was coming up and I saw it coming through this little tiny window because I was down in the basement singing that song. And uh, I think there was a camera down there so they could see me, but I couldn't see them. And I was just like in a literal, literally in a basement by myself for something like four or five, six hours straight singing that song and having it cranked in my earphones and just getting into the the real texture of what that song was about. And, and it puts you in a different mood. You know, that song has a mood to it. There's no question. And I was in that mood for many hours. And to see that sun coming up at the very end when I was so tired and so burnt out, but yet so happy that, you know, I got a decent performance on it. So and that is one reason why I love playing that song. It always brings that whole experience back to me. And I think it's a classic ballad song for Lion Thief. And a lot of people didn't hear it because it wasn't going to be a single. So there you have it.
I think the work paid off in that one because the song is absolutely epic sounding and the melody and guitar work on that uh, tune is just, it comes across. So I agree 100% with that. Yeah, I love that song. All right, so let's fast forward five years. So we get to 1987, set the stage a little bit. You're coming off being involved in Hearing Aid. There's major momentum on Summertime Girls. You know, the songs in the movie Real Genius, which I love. You're on Geffen, Whitesnake 87, Aerosmith Permanent Vacation, Def Leppard's huge, Guns N' Roses is about to explode, Jimmy yep. DeGrasso enters the band, you auditioned a ton of guys. Like, were you feeling like, all right, we've arrived, we're with the big boys, or is like Geffen a blessing and a curse? Well, it was a blessing as far as we knew going in, because uh, we had gotten the uh, the rap from John Kolodner, who the guy that signed us at Geffen, it, he had told us uh, when it came out to see us play. In fact, we were touring at that time with Aerosmith, so it was perfect for him because he was out there to see Aerosmith too. He would tell us, you know, hey man, we want you to do exactly what you want to do. Don't try to write us a hit single per se. Obviously, we want radio playable songs, but we're not going to, you know, come down on you solely for that. We want you to just do what you do best. So we were just really excited to have a somebody telling us that where, you know, A&M was constantly telling us come up with more radio friendly songs and B be with a record company that for the first time we thought in our career was going to be the right fit for our style of music because A&M was not the right fit for our style of music. And the previous yesterday and today records in the seventies with London records, that was a, just a disaster. So yeah, we were going into this whole experience with a new drummer, new, I guess, new momentum because we just coming off of one of the biggest tours we had done in our career and successes on MTV, as you said. So it was looking good. It was, it was looking real good as we, as we entered the studio. Yeah, this really is, when you hold the three records together that we're talking about tonight, or just put all the catalog, the Y&T catalog, up in a line, Contagious is one of those records to me. It still is a Y&T record, and I love the record, but it definitely, to me, is sort of an outlier in that graft. It looks different and feels different than everything else. And maybe it was because it was 87. So let's just go back to the album artwork itself, right? With Black Tiger, after Earthshaker, with Black Tiger, it starts to take this Y&T look, I'll call it, uh, to the album covers. <laughs> and, it, and it continues with it continues with Mean Street and even the latest record, Face Melter, I mean, certainly has qualities of that, but Contagious, what is the album cover of Contagious? Because I can't even really tell what that is. Yeah, that was a kind of an interesting thing. And you have to understand that in our career, over our career, with the exception of the Black Tiger, Mean Streak, and Rock We Trust records, where we had uh, John Dismukes doing those great drawings, we didn't have that much say in what was going to happen with the record cover. It was kind of one of those things where the record company goes, okay, look, we have an art department and uh, we just tell them what the name of the record's going to be and the, and the type of music it is. And they're going to come up with something great. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it was one of those things where you, 
here's your record cover, guys. Hope you like it. (laughs) (laughs) And basically what that is, is that is supposed to be a test tube that fell to the ground and it looks like a granite surface or something and broke open with some sort of liquid that is contagious. (laughs) So that. That's believe it or not what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> okay, well now that you tell me what it is, I can kind of see that. Uh but yeah, that's that is completely interesting to me. Uh yeah, I would have never guessed that for sure. Right. The first side of contagious gives us contagious LA rocks, temptation, the kid goes crazy and fight for your life. I absolutely loved contagious i mean to me that was that was ready to be the next radio anthem in my opinion i still love it today when you guys play it you wrote that with that's the other thing about contagious right now we start seeing some outside writers getting involved uh and you wrote that one with taylor rhodes what can you tell us about that well john kladner had thought you know hey you know I think it would be cool to have an outside songwriter come in and and help maybe write a song or two. So that was kind of his way after he had given us the rap, we want you to do whatever you want to do. You know, then we get signed and it's kind of like, well, but at the same time might help out, you know, to have us, you know, an outside songwriter come in and maybe help to create and carve a song that's radio friendly. Well, Taylor came up with some stuff that I wouldn't have written for sure, but I liked it, but it was, you know, it was definitely his influence to, to uh, come up with the woes and stuff like that. Yeah. That wasn't my thing at the time, but I came up with uh, a lot of the other part of the song. So the two of us wrote that song together and it was just the two of us down in our rehearsal studio and uh, just slugging out ideas and, Taylor's a great guy, really, really talented songwriter. I love that guy. He was just a sweetheart from the South, and uh, he just he just was easy to work with. And, yeah, I mean, it wasn't my idea, really, to have outside songwriters or anybody in the band. We, we thought we had it covered with the four of us, but we also understood that under contract with that label, we're going to, if they say we want you to try this, we're, we're not going to go, fuck you. <laughs> so... Yeah. You know, especially a brand new label that we're on now. So we thought, all right, we're, we're going to give it a go. But uh, yeah, that song ter- turned out to be great. I mean, I, I have you know no qualms with it whatsoever. I, I know is that the, the whoa-oh part maybe sounds a little sort of Bon Jovi-ish, and that's not something I would have done. But, you know, it fits the song. It's a good, easy melody to to go with. And, and the fans, of course, worldwide, they, as soon as that chorus comes in, they start singing along with it. So without us even asking for it. So I think it did what it was supposed to do from that standpoint. Yeah. I, I love the riff and I think it works with the gang vocals and everything else. So, uh, I'm a hundred percent on right. board with everything you said about it. Yeah. Uh, then LA rocks. Yes. Now LA rocks has got a story to it. <laughs> Let's hear. Well, they all have stories, but but this story I, I've certainly told before. But I, I don't know how far I've gotten into the story. But I'll just say that I was writing a couple of songs before. Well, let's just say a couple of months before we got down to some serious songwriting for this record. I was hanging out with the keyboard player from Sammy Hager's band, 
Jesse Harms. Uh-huh. And uh, Jesse and I were, were writing together. And again, this was a John Kolodner idea. And so I had never written before with a keyboard player. That was a unique experience. And uh, we spent probably the better part of maybe two or three weeks uh, hanging out different days, not every day for those two, three weeks, but just, you know, on and off and trying to come up with stuff. So we kind of came up with maybe three songs and uh, they just had, they just didn't work. They didn't work. And, and along the way, one of the songs that he wanted to show me was this song that he wrote called Boys Night Out. And at that time, he was upset at Sammy because Sammy and them had done their most successful record doing Can't Drive 55 and all that stuff. Everybody went out and started buying houses and expensive cars and everything, thinking, all right, the next records are just going to get better and better and we're going to be killer. And then he said, sorry, guys, I'm going to Van Halen. And their whole life exploded. And so at that time, at the moment that I was writing with him, he was like, fuck this. I'm just, you know, if I've got anything that I was writing for Sammy or with Sammy or whatever, I'm, I've got nothing to worry about. I'm going to show you, Dave, this, right, this song that I, I brought to Sammy. And I said, this is a good song. And Sammy said, oh yeah. And then he never did it. So, uh, so it's, it's Jesse's song and he, and it was boys night out and I listened to it and, you know, and it just didn't fit right for Y&T for me. And, and so uh, anyway, at the end of our whole you know, exciting two or three weeks of, of trying to come up with something for Y&T. I just, you know, said, Oh, well, I got to get going, man. I, I got to start writing with the guys and nothing worked for us, but it was fun and all that kind of stuff. And he said, Hey man, if you want to use any of this stuff, just go for it. Just do it. <laughs> and I said, all right, well, whatever. So we came up with this tune, the band did, and it was, an untitled song, but we loved the riffs and we loved the melodies we'd come up with and everything like that. And we're working with our producer at the time in pre-production for this record. And he said, well, Hey, you know, it'd be a good title for this is boys night out. And I said, yeah, well that, because, because they, they had heard that demo that we did uh, that me and Jesse did. And I said, well, yeah, Jesse said, you know, if you want to use anything, but actually we're not using anything. We're just using the title. And of course, you can't copyright a title of a song. There's a million, you know, songs that are of the same title. So, yeah. so I just thought, all right, well, I'll do that, and then I'll give him a call later and tell him, hey, man, we didn't use one of your songs, but we used the idea for the title. So then, when that record gets released, or is actually just in the process of getting released, David Geffen uh, had Sammy do a makeup record because he had one more in his contract that he had to do before he could legally leave that whole entity and go on with Van Halen, they did Boys Night Out. (laughs) (laughs) And that was going to be their first single released on that makeup record. And so David Geffen sees that we've got this song called Boys Night Out, and we were thinking of releasing it as our single. And he says, no Fargan way, guys. You're not going to do it, and we're not going to release it unless you change the title. So we're like, wow. Okay, well, all right. Uh, well, let's see. The, the bridge running into it is the same each time, and it's L.A. Rocks, moves nonstop. All right, we'll use that as the title. <laughs> <laughs> so the, for, the first 30,000 records were already printed when this whole thing came down. So there are 30,000 records out there that has Boys Night Out as the title, and the rest of them were all L.A. Rocks. <laughs> 
So there's a little story for you. <laughs> I might have that one. It's probably right next to my uh, 10 that has the cover of the beautiful woman from behind. Oh, I got yeah. that one too from Germany. Oh yeah. <laughs> so Dave, I got to ask you one more question about this song. So did Phil write the lyrics to this song or did you write the lyrics to this song? No, Phil wrote the lyrics to that one. So do you have any clue what two-tone, full-blown, technicolor, Kodachrome is gold? <laughs> I just thought it sounded cool, but I, I figured in Phil's mind, I could only imagine what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, and Phil, you know, Phil was a very artsy kind of guy. I mean, as, as crazy of a guy as that guy was, and as much as he liked to party and drink and have fun and just a wild man, the other side of that coin is that he was a really sweet, intelligent, and very artsy kind of guy. And when it came to writing lyrics, Phil had excelled. And by that time, when we hit the Contagious record, you could not, none of us could come up with the, with the stuff he could come up with. You know, he yeah. would just, he had a way of, of taking a simple line that any one of us would have thought of and turning it around with a few extra little bits and bobs. And all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, wow man, <laughs> he's got it. <laughs> so yeah, when he, when he comes in and says, Hey man, how about the <laughs> Technicolor Dakota Chrome? You know, it's just like, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of get where you're coming from, Phil, but you know, sure. Why not? Sounds great. <laughs> yeah. The cadence sounds good on it. That's true. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And before we end that side, I just going to tell you that, uh, fight for your life was a song that was really just, you know, straight ahead, hard rock and Y&T song all the way. And uh, Phil and I wrote the lyrics to that because we had just kicked Leonard out of the band. That was about Leonard. That song was about Leonard. And that was basically about trying to get your shit together and get off the drugs. And, you know, you got to fight for your life because he pretty much was in a, in a situation at that time and years and years before that where any given night we could have thought we were going to get a phone call that Leonard was dead because of an overdose because wow. he did enough drugs every night of his life to kill any normal human being. But he had just gotten to that point where his body got used to more and more of it. So he could handle more and more of it. But uh, yeah, he was, he was in bad shape. And so, uh, you know, that's what that was about. It comes across, but yeah, that closes out side one. So, uh, Sonny, what do you what do you want to talk about here with side two? All right, so side two has Armed and Dangerous, Rhythm or Not, Bodily Harm, Eyes of a Stranger, and the instrumental I'll Cry for You. Let's talk about Rhythm or Not, because I'm not sure I've ever heard the world timbales on any other song <laughs> ever. So that's a very cool song. I love it. Love it. So I'm sure that was a Philism. It but was. The, but the little guitar solo riffs, like stuff you do with a volume knob or the toggle right. switch. When I watch you guys live, it is very hard for me to take my eyes off you because you got a lot. You're doing a lot nonchalant with your guitar that people don't always notice. Where did that come from? Like the toggle switch thing and the volume knob thing. Did you pick that up from somebody? Uh, the toggle switch thing, I, I, it was just one of those things when we were in rehearsal one day, we were ending a song. And I had my neck pickup volume all the way off and bridge pickup volume all the way on. And I was, you know, fully on the bridge. And then I switched off of it and then switched back to it real quick and then switched off and switched back, just screwing around. 
you know, many, many hours of the day already having, you know, jammed in, in the rehearsal studio, I was just messing around and it sounded all choppy and, and kind of weird. And so then I thought, I'm going to do that with actually playing notes instead of just holding a chord and doing that. So it was just going on and off, on and off. So I'm, I'm going to try and hit a note while I hit the volume all the way on with, with my pickup switch and try and play a solo like that. And it just, that's how it came up. It was just totally off the top of my head. With the volume swell, I got that idea because I was a huge Allman Brothers fan. And Dickie Betts did that at the beginning of uh, Memory for Elizabeth Reed. And I remember seeing a live thing on TV showing him doing that and how he did it. And I just picked up on it from there. And I said, oh, so you hit the note and then you swell up on it with the volume control. So it sounds like a, a little bit of a violin or something, you know, kind of thing. And so that's where I got that from. I'm going to assume that Sunburst has been through a few surgeries over the years. Oh, yeah, it has. <laughs> I busted the, I busted the neck. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I've had to go through a few of those. Quite a few, actually. And I burned out one of the pickups. And I wish that the crew would have kept it instead of throwing it away because I could have had it rewired by Gibson so that it was, you know, one of the original pickups still, you know, and, uh, but that never did happen. And yes, I broke the neck, uh, some numerous times. I don't remember exactly how many times at the end, but it was over seven times that I broke the neck. Wow. Uh, so let's talk about eyes of strangers for a second. So I just got a chill saying this out loud, but that line, I've been waiting girl to get you alone. Like when that song starts, your fan base is so loyal that hearing the entire fan base say that line to you when the song starts is amazing watching you do it live. If you've never seen it, listeners, you got to go see YNT live because when they do this song, it's amazing. That's got to be an amazing feeling for you to hear the crowd do that. Yeah, it is. It is. Anytime that the crowd reacts back with something that was a part of the song and they do it in mass, of course, it, it's, uh, it's inspirational. And uh, it makes the uh, hairs stand up on our arms. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, the instrumental on side two, so I'll cry for you. I've noticed that that seems to be where you kind of just the feel of the room and whatever's kind of going through you. I think you keep kind of the skeleton of the song, but add a lot of right. whatever you're feeling at that point. Yes. Every night it's a different performance. I mean, I, I try to do, like you said, the skeleton or the, the main melody of it and come back to it and, but uh, the middle section uh, where it's we come down, especially uh, in volume, it's it's all whatever happens at the moment. Sometimes I've done some stuff that has just been on the spur of the moment. It just becomes magical. Sometimes I screw it up completely. <laughs> you never know. And uh, because I don't know where I'm going to go. And I let my fingers do the talking sometimes. And sometimes my fingers betray me. So, you know, <laughs> you, you, you just never know what is going to happen. But when it's a good one. Are we in that song? And I look to my right and I look to my left and behind me and just everybody's like, man, <laughs> that was the shit. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> I, I like it when that happens. <laughs> and that's that great. was one of those things where, uh, where I was talking about where Joey comes up with these great rhythm parts. He's the one that came up with that entire rhythm section for me to play over. He had worked all night long on that thing and came in one day to rehearsal and said, Dave, I've been working on this thing. I think I've just got something so cool. I can't wait to see what you come up with over the top of it. 
and we put that down on our little cassette recorder that we had in our our mono cassette recorder that we used to write, you know, put ideas down and to listen back a couple, you know, the day, day later or so and said, man, that's cool. Maybe we should put this on the record. It'd be the first time we do an instrumental. So that's what we did. Yeah. All right. So to close out Contagious, we know you only had one single and that was Contagious. If you could have picked a second single off this album, what would have it been? Well, I guess knowing radio at that time, I don't know. I, I think LA Rocks would have been good. Certainly Temptation would have from a power ballad standpoint. But I would have probably thought LA Rocks or Armed and Dangerous from the standpoint of what was maybe more radio friendly at the time.
To Face Melter, released in May of 2010 on Frontiers Records. Let's set the stage. It's your 12th studio album. It's been 13 years since Endangered Species. What prompted the 2010 release? Well, everybody had been, you know, I'm, I'm obviously doing interviews all the time, every year, on tour, at home, doesn't matter. And, you know, everyone's standard question, when's your next record coming out? <laughs> It's been a long time. It's been a long time. And, and of course, for us, it was a long time and it, because it was the mid-90s before we had done another record, and, and now we're 2010. So that's a really long time. But there was a lot of things that happened between the, those time frames. Uh, the, the band was essentially only playing a couple of shows a year in the mid-90s. We weren't really 100% playing all the time like we, like we wanted to. It was it was a grunge era, and and the grunge era pretty much zeroed out bands like us from being able to do much. So that was that time that went through, and then we came back in the 2000s with Leonard again, and uh, we went through a period where we were just getting back up and running again and doing it full time. And uh, finally, when we were you know a couple of years into that, uh, the same old problems started coming up again, and we had to make a replacement yet again. Unfortunately, firing Leonard twice was not fun. So there were a lot of things going on in the in the in betweens that were meaning that we weren't ready to settle down with what we thought was this is it. This is the band. We were still having problems with Leonard through almost that entire time, but we rehired him in two thousand and one through two thousand and six when he was, you know, we let him go again. So it just wasn't feeling like this is the time to get together and, and put a record together because he's not playing well and uh, it just doesn't make sense to do that. So then when we got Mike in the band, we needed to really establish that he was the guy, you know, and, uh, you know, he we knew he was doing well right off the bat. But the difference between how he was playing in 2006 and how he played in 2008 is night and day. You know, because because he had just you know really truly become heart and soul part of the band, and and then we and then we had you know Phil's sickness coming up, but that was afterwards. But still, you know, that's when we finally said, okay, this is the band. This is we're we're, we're solid. Everybody's playing up to their abilities. Now is the time that we can start doing a record. And uh, then it just took us a couple of years because we were playing so much, touring so much that we just didn't have the time to to spend two or three months solid at home. So uh, we, we had to tell our manager, Jill, my wife, uh, to say, all right, don't book us for the first three or four months in January. We'll start writing in December, 
and hopefully we can get it all done in those couple of months. And that's exactly what we did. From 2009 in December and November, I started writing and everybody else did. And then uh, we were done by about April of 2010. I think the whole thing was all done, packaged up and all. Wow. All right. So 15 songs on this album. The prelude on with the show. Who's doing the talking? Is that Phil? That is Phil. Yeah. That's Phil. That was his okay. idea. Yeah. That was that whole piece is Phil. That's something that he had come up with at home on his keyboard. And when he comes up with an idea for an entire song, Phil, he will just go over it and over it and over it. And I don't mean like 10 times. I'm talking about on and off for maybe years, <laughs> you know, and then he'll bring it to the band, you know, after he thinks that, but now he didn't spend that much time with Prelude because we didn't have that much time, but you know, he, he spent probably a couple months toiling over that whole idea before he even brought it into the band. And because he knew it was going to be in a weird thing for us to do where it wasn't really a song. It was just this piece of music that he wanted to stick at the beginning of the, of the album. So, you know, that whole thing, I mean, the only playing on that is literally just him. I mean, his idea of the, of the keyboard part, which was played by a friend of ours who plays keyboard in the Who, Lauren Gold, he did the, the keyboard part for Phil. And then I just put a guitar riffs over the top of it. But it was pretty much all Phil's idea, lock, stock, and barrel. And the idea of it was exactly what on what the show was all about which was just basically the life of a musician and the life of him and the life of Y&T, basically, is what it was all about, is that, you know, through thick and thin, through the tough times, through everything else, we're here because we love what we're doing, and there's going to be uh, great times, there's going to be sad times, there's going to be all this stuff in between, but through it all, the whole idea at the end of the day is, screw that, on with the show, we're just going to keep going forward. Yeah, something I remember with on with the show, I want your money and I'm coming home. I remember seeing you around that time. Uh, it might have been late 2010. And, you know, you hear the Joe Elliott's and the Paul Stanley's of the world that say, oh, the fans only want to hear the hits, blah, blah, blah. I go to the show. I think it was Ace of Spades, Sacramento. And you guys opened with on with the show. I'm like, well, obviously, Y&T's got something else figured out. Like, they're not worried <laughs> about playing new songs. You guys killed it that night. That was fun. Absolutely. And, you know, we're well aware that any time a band comes out with a new record, you can only play a couple of songs in any given set. I mean, you don't have to. You could you could be crazy and play the whole friggin' thing, but uh, you're going to bore the hell out of your fan base. Chances are, no matter how many times, you know, maybe 10 or 20% of them have already had a chance to listen to the record, everybody else is going to want to hear their favorites from the years before. But our fans are, are a different sort of ilk. I mean, they really do care about the band and uh, they get into the entire lifespan of the band and what that means to us. So we knew we were going to do a couple of songs that night and we're going to open up with it, damn it. And we're not going to just do all those songs right off the bat, but you know, we're going to at least open up with on with the show and then play a couple other songs from the record throughout the set, you know, sort of interspersed. Yeah. Let me tell you, I would have lost my mind. Have you not played blind Patriot when I saw you for the first time? <laughs> I freaking love that tune, man. Thank you, man. That's probably one of my favorites off face melter. I really, really love that riff and blind Patriot. What a great tune. 
that was Phil telling me, you know, because I, I would end up writing most of the music to a lot of the songs. And I remember him telling me, Dave, you know, you do ballads and you do fast songs so well. He goes, we need another fast song, man. <laughs> we need a we need an ass kicker. And I just remember him saying that. And I just got down and just started going for it. And, and that's what came up. So he gave me the go ahead and I went for it. <laughs> that's awesome, man. And I know Phil was a talented lyricist, but uh, yeah, there had to be times where you hear stuff like on Hot Shot, got a hot shot, got on load, going to explode, or you're talking about <laughs> your magic bone and going to go blind. Like, we're past your Catholic <laughs> high school here, right? You got that Catholic <laughs> high school upbringing. Like, was there times where you say, Phil, are you serious with this? Like, you want me to say this out loud? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny you say that because, uh, you know, to me, you know, it's rock and roll. It's all good in love and war here. So, you know, I wasn't too concerned. I mean, certainly there were a few things that were fairly suggestive and, and we'd get a laugh about it and we'd go, you want to do that? All right, let's do it. But just for an example, he didn't always write every single lyric for every song. I wrote the lyrics to I'm Coming Home and I wrote the lyrics to uh, Blind Patriot. So those were mine and, and pretty much the entire song was. But where he would get into certain songs where he wanted to be snarky, you know, because Phil could be funny as hell and sexy to him was, was fun and funny. And it is for most people. So, you know, we just thought, ah, screw it. You're okay with it, then I'm okay with it. Cause I remember on a previous record in the nineties where we were doing a song that I came up with this idea for this line and he laughed and said, we can't say that. And I said, really bad. You are telling me that. <laughs> so it's funny. He does have a filter. He does have a filter because I reached that filter with him on that one particular song uh, in the 90s that we recorded. And I sang it anyway. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, it's more out of fun than anything else, you know, for him. And the whole idea of him doing Gonna Go Blind and having fun with those lyrics. Yeah. I mean, that's pure fill all the way. He just loves to just say something, sit back, and watch people react. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. All right, so Deadly Deceiver, which is a bonus mm-hmm. track on the Japanese album. By the way, you guys do a great job of the bonus tracks. And, you know, a lot of the times a band will add bonus tracks to Japanese or European editions, and they're just throwaways. But, man, that song kicks serious ass. And there's times you guys do some of the bonus tracks live, which is yeah, cool, too. absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is about the bonus track was this was one of our main songs. I mean, you know, just one of the other songs on the record. This was supposed to be on the record. And then when we heard that we had to, you know, separate one out and one had to be a bonus track, we all toiled long and hard for a good two or three straight days trying to figure out what track are we going to take off the U.S. record and it's going to be a bonus only in Japan. Of course, we always knew that you know, you could get the tracks online anywhere, like at Amazon or, you know, iTunes or something like that. But on the disc itself, if it was released in the U.S., it's not going to be on it. So it was a lot of discussion, and Deadly Deceiver was not 100% finished at the time. And so I said that was another song that I finished the lyrics to. So when it was finished and done and, and we had put all the vocals on it and everything, it was really difficult to figure out what was going to be the bonus track. And finally, I just said, you know what? I'm okay with it, man. If, if you want to put Deadly Deceiver, 
uh, as a bonus track. I'm, I like the song, but it was a last minute finish. So, uh, you know, if it, if it didn't come out to be uh, on the, on the U S release, that's, you know, I'll just deal with that, you know, but I know that people can always get it if they want to online. So. Yeah, that's great point with that. So let's finish out face melter. Give us a song off face melter that you wish uh, would have been a single. Well, I'll tell you what, we tried to do a live video for Blind Patriot, but we hated the way the video came out, so we struck it down. So uh, I, I will say Blind Patriot, because I think it was one of our top cuts to do the second video for. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it up for that one. But there's so many good songs on that record. It's no disregarding anything else. It's just that that was the band wanted to do that as their second video release. I agree, and I'm going to support you 1,000%. I think Blind Patriot would make a fantastic song for people to hear because, as I've already pointed out, it was one of my favorites on this record. And you're absolutely right. The record's got a ton of great songs start to finish, and that brings home the point that bands, even 40 years into their career, are still putting out good music, and that's wonderful for a music lover like myself. Right. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. It's funny. I just got a uh, an email today from uh, the company that services our digital stuff. In other words, any anytime that something's been streamed online or has been bought online, they're the company that tracks that and pays us for it each month. Mm. And it was interesting to see because they were only tracking a few records, and one of them was the Face Melter record. And uh, I was just looking today. What was what was the most popular on that record being streamed? Number one was I'm Coming Home. Then it was I Want Your Money. Then it was Gonna Go Blind, On With The Show, If You Want Me and How Long, in that order. But yet on my royalty statements for songwriting, How Long is almost always at the top, you know, right after I'm, I'm Coming Home as the maybe the second or third position of the one that was making the most money on that statement. So it's, it's funny how things, everybody's got a different idea. <laughs> well, Dave, I just, uh, I turn on my uh, Spotify and I just uh, loop uh, one of your records when I go to sleep at night. So that hopefully will increase your uh, royalties that uh, come in from you. Yeah, your, uh... man. <laughs> you, thank, thank you. Thank you. I got at least another five or six cents off of that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, listen, we don't want to leave uh, your kick-ass band that you've got currently going on. So can you tell us one thing about uh, John, Aaron, and Mike uh, that you wish more people knew? Well, I got to tell you, Mike has been in this band now since 2006. Okay. That is 13 years. That's longer than most bands have ever been together. If you think about it, I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot of, of us guys that have tried to stick it out for, you know, decades, but for the most part, that is an amazing run for anybody. And he's not the, the longest that's in the, has been in the band with us. And that, that would be John. John joined the band in 2003 officially. So he's been in the band 16 years between the two of those guys. They have played thousands of shows with us. So that's, that's just an amazing thing, number one. But Mike has really surprised a lot of people, not us. I and mean, we knew he was great, but he has surprised a lot of people over the years. And we find that other drummers from other major bands just love Mike. They just think he is so the drummer, you know, that's quintessential. He just 
seems like he's so relaxed up there, but he's playing some just some amazing stuff, and he's very consistent night to night. And let me tell you, coming from a guy that had done a ton of drugs and was very inconsistent for many years, it's been ever so nice to hear somebody that you just can always count on every night. The beat's always going to be in the same place. And the band just, because of guys like him and John and Aaron, we are always consistently good every night. I mean, there may be some little bits and bobs where some of us are sick that night and maybe it's a little tougher to sing or whatever, but for the most part, all of these guys are just so consistent and so talented that we just nail it every night. That is the best praise I can ever give to anybody is that they are awesome musicians and consistent musicians. And John has been with us on and off since the beginning of, of my career in Y&T. In fact, he was one of the first musicians I ever met after me and Leonard had jammed together before we even got the band finished because he had like driven down there on his, on his uh, bicycle because he lived nearby Leonard's house and had heard us rehearsing in his grandmother's front room and, and went, man, these guys are great. <laughs> so, you wow. know, that's when we were just doing cover tunes, you know, so that that's how long I've known John Nyman. John's been a friend of ours. He's helped out. He's been on the road with us in the 80s, singing background vocals with us, wow. doing stuff on the records with us. And so, yeah, I mean, he was almost like a fifth member from almost day one, but we finally got a chance to actually put him in the band in 2003. So that, that's really cool. That's awesome. I had no idea about that. Oh, yeah. He's like my brother, man. I mean, that you know, other than Phil... I would say John is, is, is the next in line from the living, certainly, because unfortunately, the other three original members of Y&T are no longer on this planet. But John's been with me for many, many years, many decades. <laughs> so that's great. Now, Aaron came in and he's been with us now for over three years now. And uh, he is just rock solid, man. <laughs> I remember the first time we did a, a rehearsal with him when he was uh, just basically running it down with us to, to see if he was the guy, there were moments playing a couple of songs where I was like, man, I, I, I would get the chills because he was playing Phil's notes, exactly how Phil played them on stage. And so here's a guy that was such a fan of Y&T's. He was such a fan of Phil's that, you know, he was being true to Phil with his own style, obviously, because Phil didn't play like Aaron. They're, they both play quite different from each other. But still, you know, that was something that Aaron brought to the band, which was this Philism, I guess, is what you could say, <laughs> back in the band. That's great. All right, so a few closing comments before we let you go. So first of all, whoever is doing your email communication from your website is doing an excellent job. Because okay. I get emails about Y&T stuff all the time, and you know, as a fan, you don't always know kind of where to go to get some of this stuff, but uh, your email person is doing a great job. And then I got to tell you personally, you have been the voice and music of my life for the last 34 years, and it's touched me in ways you'll never know. I'm incredibly proud to have you as a California brother, no doubt. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, so important. Tell everybody listening where they can find out more stuff about you, tour dates, buy stuff, your documentary, everything. Yeah. Well, of course, social media is where most people go nowadays. We've had our website up for years and years and years, and a lot of people 
We try to direct them to the website primarily for, if nothing else, to find out about tour dates because uh, it's always drives us nuts. And it happens all the time when we go through and play a two-month tour through the U.S. And let's say we play Poughkeepsie, New York or something, right? <laughs> and a, a month later or even maybe a week later, somebody will email the website or say something on social media and go, when are you guys ever going to come back to Poughkeepsie? <laughs> I you knew know? that was coming. It, it just happens, man. <laughs> it happens every single day. I mean, it, Jill, you know, will a lot of times take, you know, some of these emails that come in and she'll, she'll find out about them and, and she'll relay it to me and she'll get a kick out of it. And it, it's like, we just played there, man. <laughs> or we're playing there this weekend. Are you kidding? You don't know about it yet? You know, go to our friggin' tour page. <laughs> no, and I, I know what it is, man. I, I understand. I understand. I mean, not, not everybody is on, on their favorite band's websites or supposed social media sites every day. So a lot of times they'll come in right after we've done something in their area and maybe it didn't get publicized very well or something. Because nowadays, most venue owners who used to spend money on radio advertisement and print advertisement, they don't do it anymore. They rely on the band to use their social media sites to basically talk about what the upcoming dates are, and then they have their own social media page. So if you are not connected to the venues in your area, constantly checking their pages yep. or coming to your favorite band's website on a weekly basis, you're absolutely going to miss us coming by. It's just the way of the world nowadays. Nobody wants to spend money on advertising anymore because social media is out there. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just an, a good excuse for, for promoters and, and venue owners to just not spend money anymore on acts. Yeah. I'll get updates from like Bandstown and Songkick and stuff that says, you know, Y&T just added a date in your right. area or whatever, you know? So I get stuff yeah, like that. And, that. and those are great things to be, you know, part of because that's what we all hope for is yeah. that when we announce the dates that it gets put through some of those social media kind of third party things that, that will pull people nearby the shows and say, Hey, this band is coming to you, you know, any in, in at this time or whatever, just like you said. Yeah. Well, so tell us about the doc release. When's that? Do you have a date on that now? Well, we don't have a specific date, but we know that we're going to release it this year. Uh, we've been trying to put the screws to the to the guys that have been doing this for years, and yeah. uh, and they keep getting more and more material, and keep getting more and more material, and it's and and the thing was growing and growing by leaps and bounds. At one point it was seven and a half hours long. So <laughs> um, we just told them without any, absolutely without any expectations other than this, you have to have it done by this date this year. And it's got to be done. And, and if it isn't done, then, then we're going to hire somebody else to come in and finish it. I mean, you know, so in other words, we, we let them know with no un uncertain terms it has to be done by this time and released uh, before the end of the year. So that's exactly what they're doing. And when we came home from our U.S. tour at the end of March, uh, we all had to get together at my place and watch the very first cut. Now, that first cut was three and a half hours long. So we were going to take notes and we were going to tell them what we think should be cut You know, from that, give them an idea how they can take another hour plus off of this. And uh, they've all well already now seen the second cut. 
And the second cut was two hours and 15 minutes. And then I told them where we could, you know, and all the guys in the band gave, gave their little bits and bobs of what they thought should be, you know, cut here and there. And I think they're pretty much running around the two hour thing right now. So it's really just down to some sweetening and, and putting in the voiceover stuff. Uh, which Eddie Trunk is doing. So Eddie has to record that part. They have to lay it in there. And then it's just uh, a matter of, of laying in all the rest of the music that goes you know, in and around it. And uh, then we're off to the races. <laughs> awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, me too, believe me. Because it's frustrating as hell because we're not involved in doing it. And I, I think a lot of fans think that we're doing it somehow. And of course, a lot of them get mad, you know, and they're yeah. just like, well, it's taken so long and so on and so forth. And because some of these people gave us money in advance with Kickstarter and they're like, what are you doing with our money? And, yeah. and, and I wish I could tell them that I could help them out. But, you know, we, we let these guys do their own thing because we wanted them to finish it because they put so much of their heart and soul into it for so, so long of a period of time. Yeah. We hate it to just like take it away from them at the last minute. So, yeah. so they're, they're doing a great job and uh, this thing will get done this year and out. I don't know exactly where, when it's going to be out, but it will be out before December 31st. I guarantee you that. <laughs> well, that's good. And I think it's a good time for it anyway. Obviously that's a big thing uh, nowadays with the documentaries and stuff coming out. I think it's perfect yeah. timing. So, uh, well, Dave, listen, you have been ridiculously gracious with your time and this has meant so much to both myself and Hollywood because it is a big episode for us. It is our hundredth episode and we are absolutely, uh, humbled and appreciative and honored that you agreed to do this. Thank you, Dave Manichetti. You bet. It was my pleasure. And thanks for uh, carrying the torch for Y&T for all these years. That means a lot to us, too. Absolutely. And that torch will continue to be carried and passed when this uh, is long <laughs> and gone. But Dave, once again, thank you. Thanks to the listeners for listening. We appreciate each and every one of you guys. And we will talk to you guys next week. See ya. See you later. See you later, man. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.